0: Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the How Did You Hear About Us section.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Freelancer Show. On our panel today, we have Jonathan Stark. Hello. And Kai Davis. Hey, hey, hey. And I'm Ruben Lerner. And this week, we are going to speak about how to get started in training. So Kai, I don't know how much training you've done, but Jonathan and I have definitely done quite a bit, and that's my main gig nowadays. And it seems, I mean, I think Jonathan and Kai, you were both saying before we started recording that like, you have a whole bunch of people in your mentoring programs who who like the idea of training. Can can you describe who these people are and why they're interested in training other than being very smart? (gasps) In my- Sure, go for it, Kai.
2: Sure, sure, Uh, in my experience, it often is somebody who has an understanding of their specialization or their area of expertise, but has been charging either hourly or daily and is saying, hey, you know what? I want something where I'm able to provide more value to the client through training. It's going to be less intensive. I have to spend, let's say, less time on keyboard. I don't have to do as much programming. And it's going to provide value to whoever I am training. So they're looking for some way to graduate from, let's call it, traditional freelancing and consulting hourly or project based to something that's more strategic or training level they're looking for another modality of doing business.
3: Yep, very similar with me. It's it's like when a student comes to work with me the first thing I am, I wonder is you know, what's your superpower? Like what is your major strength? And a lot of times it's especially if they're a little bit on the the younger side, business-wise, not necessarily age-wise. They're super focused on their skills. They feel like they've achieved a, a degree of mastery of something like Angular is a really common one. And they're like, I'm, I'm, I can do Angular with my hands tied behind my back. Uh, and and then I start hitting them with like, your customers don't care about that. They care about you know how you're going to change their business. How would you change their business? And they're like, I don't know. Maybe I should just do training instead. You know, so it's kind of like uh it's kind of like a default position for somebody who's really good, has a has a high degree of confidence in a skill. I'm like, okay, is your audience going to be your peers and you're gonna go out and train them? Or is your audience going to be businesses that you can transform with these particular skills that you happen to have, but aren't really the focus? And I, I think some people. Are, are actually cut out to be trainers. Some people are natural educators and other people are just sort of retreating to that because they're a little bit nervous to have the conversations with past clients and potential clients about what value being great at Angular actually would bring to a pizza place. So so for some people, I think, when I talk to some people, I get a sense that certain ones are are natural fit and they should do it, and other ones are maybe it's a, it's a... A little bit of a cop out, maybe, Mm -hmm. but one thing. One thing I do. I'm curious to just sort of plant this seed, and we can maybe talk about it over the course of the episode. I'm curious. I tend to tell people that running a consultancy where you're doing either advisory work. Let's never mind advisory work. Let's just say you. Let's just say you're one of those companies that's we do angular development and training. That scares me. And I'm curious what Ruben thinks about this, because to me, a development, a dev shop and a training shop are two completely different things, even though they both are fundamentally based on the skill. They're just completely different businesses to run.
1: Um, I don't know if they're completely businesses to run, but they're going to end up doing sort of different things in different ways. I mean, I, I know that there are a lot of companies that explicitly want trainers who are also active developers, that from their perspective, someone who's not in the trenches every day doing development encountering countering problems um, is just going to, over time at least, lose their connection, lose their touch. Um, and people actually ask me, they say, well, if you haven't really done that many projects in the last few years, uh, how do you know what people's problems are? And I tell them, well, first of all, because we talk about it in class. Second of all, I spend time investigating things, researching things. I write about my blog, I include it in my my courses. So you do need to like spend time doing stuff, which is a different, and the other thing is that you're going to be talking to different people at a company. So if you're a dev shop, you're going to be talking to like the VP of R&D or the CTO, and you're going to be working for them on some sort of whatever the model is. But if you're a training shop, you're going to be talking to the training manager, which could be the chief learning officer, the training manager, VP of HR, lots of different titles for that sort of thing. And it's wildly different budgets, wildly different types of schedules and expectations. So you can do both, but you're just going to be serving two different types of clients. And quite frankly, and here's the big dark secret of the training world, the training pays way better. So (laughs) so, So like, what I discovered at some point was it pays better. They don't call me in the middle of the night with bugs. And I can schedule f- much further out in advance. This is a big win for me. Why am I fighting it? And they'll pay in advance, I'm guessing? Um, I've never had – I know like you you get people to pay in advance. I've never actually asked. Um, mm-hmm. I just get paid normally. Like some, some clients surprise me and they pay me right away, uh, like on the fi- final day or sometimes even a little earlier. But usually it's like within two weeks, worst case net plus 60 from the really stodgy companies that are annoying. Mm-hmm. Um but like, that's the, the worst case scenario. And usually most of my clients pay soon enough or worst case it's like a, a mix. So that doesn't bother me. I've heard stories of people. I mean, especially from you. But I've heard stories from people of like doing training with big companies where they say, this is just how I work. And somehow they're able to arm wrestle the company into submission.
3: Yeah. Well, even if it's I can tell you from experience, mine and others, that it is more likely to get paid in advance for a training than it is for a dev project. It gets—it's yeah. much harder to get paid in advance for a development project.
1: If and the you, thing if is you care about
3: that sort is of thing, yeah, just I was yeah, just I saying. mean, it
1: doesn't bother me so much. I mean, the thing is also training is a product, right? We talk sometimes about productized consulting, and that's precisely what this is. Like, so when someone calls me up and says, "Hey, I've heard you teach Python," I said, and they say, "What are your courses?" And I say, well, I have my intro Python course, I have my advanced Python course, I have my data science machine learning course, right? And so being able to rattle off a list of catalog items with specific prices, specific contents, and specific times means that you're, first of all, showing that you know what you're doing, right? They want to know that you're not just saying, oh, yeah, I know a lot of Python, so I can teach it to you. No, no, like having a syllabus and having it clearly cut there is very good. And then some of them will want to negotiate more than others, And often when they want to negotiate over the content, they'll be throwing in all sorts of nonsensical stuff. And I'll say, listen, that's just not important. Let's get, like, especially with the intro Python course, let's just get the fundamentals out of the way. Um, Mm. And over time, I've sort of learned to be more stubborn about certain things than others.
3: Interesting. So, So
2: I don't have a lot of training experience. And a question that comes to my mind is if... I, or a listener who is in my shoes, has specialty, has some domain expertise, and wants to get started with training, I'm hearing you say that it's valuable to have a predetermined syllabus, essentially a course, a package put together that somebody's able to say, yes, this solves our needs, let's buy it. How do I go, though, from I know I could do a thing to, okay, this is a package that a client will
1: buy? A lot of trial and error. Um, (laughs) I mean, that's like, that's the unfortunate truth. I I look back at some point last year or so at some of my first syllabi that I had and sent to clients and it is just, you know, face palm embarrassment. Mm -hmm. Um, I tried to put in way too much. I talked about things that didn't belong in a course. I'm sure that I gave them extremely superficial treatment, but you know what? They bought it and they invited me back. And over time I sort of got more confident. Um, the, the, The mantra I always say is every year. I remove content and increase exercises, and people are happier. Mm-hmm. So don't feel, in fact, it's a bad idea on all fronts, pedagogically and b- business wise, to throw in lots of stuff into a course. Make your intro course, like it's usually easiest for people to come with an intro course, right? So come with an intro course to whatever subject it is, Angular, React, uh, whatever, whatever it should be, right? Come with an intro course. And if you say, oh, I really would also like to teach X and Y and Z, then you have topics for an advanced course and i promise you some things your basic course you will get rid of and you'll put into an advanced course and that gives you a second syllabus you can then offer to people Mm -hmm. and you'll lather rinse repeat i could
3: not agree more about starting with intro it's the it's that's true with books every all kinds of educational products i think it's easiest and it's it's easiest on like three fronts to start with intro material and yes you're, you're right you'll Reuven's right. You'll, you'll put in too much stuff and stuff that actually is advanced or stuff that is irrelevant. But if you start with intro, it's, you, you've kind of got the largest possible market and they're the ones that are going to be the most blown away by how awesome your course is.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: Where if you start off with the really fancy stuff that you like to do every day or the stuff that really floats your boat and you're an expert, then you're going to have the, the toughest audience and you're going to have the biggest problem with imposter syndrome, you're going to have the smallest audience because there are it's going to be just just logically there're going to be fewer advanced users of a particular framework or technology. You could perhaps charge more for an advanced course, but it's going to be harder in a lot of ways. So I I could not agree more with starting at intro level and uh, going from there, learning as you go.
1: I would also say like I oh sorry No, no, please. I mean, I'm teaching my second advanced Python course, or starting the second one, uh, started today, second one in the last week. And advanced courses are hard in a whole lot of different ways. In addition to everything Jonathan said, an incredible variety of people will show up to an advanced course. So today, I was supposed to have 16 people in the class. Half of them dropped out in the last week because they had work pressure. So eight people showed up. Of those, this is an advanced Python class, mind you. Two have been using Python every day for the last few years. Two or three others um, have heard Python is sort of interesting, and the rest, as they said, like they can they can read Python. They use it once every few months. So an advanced class is going to attract that sort of variety that makes it much harder to teach because you're going to be constantly trying worrying: is it too advanced? Is it too easy? If you start with an intro course, you can say this is for people with no experience. Or if people come with some experience, they know to expect that there'll be some things that bore them.
3: Yeah, teaching to advance. There's another another thing that teaching to advance students is difficult where they if, you know, good luck if you find one that disagrees with your your spaces versus tabs or something. (laughs) And and, and the other and or maybe has really, really deep expertise in a particular area. Particular uh, edge case aspect of the technology, and will fight you like crazy on it, or will or will flat out know more about it than you. Because like you might have a more broad experience across an advanced spectrum of topics, but this person works, you know, on the like web, for example. You know, they work with local storage. or They work with service workers all day long. So I could be teaching an advanced front end course. And somebody's like, oh, well, pfft, you know, that thing you did with service workers is a little out of date because about you know, blah, blah, blah. and like, and, and that's just one tiny piece of like a whole, you know, three day class. It, so, it, and that's fine. Like, I know how to deal with that. Like, be like, all right, that you're probably right. You, you know, you tell us, well, how, what should I change? You know, I don't care about that. It's fine with me. I don't have an ego about that kind of thing. But that can I, I, really throw a new teacher a, a new instructor will be like, oh,
1: right, right. And I, I have several sort of phrases, canned responses, ways I deal with that. I, first of all, I tell people that more than 50 percent of what I teach is based on people's questions that I didn't know how to answer. And I go and I research it and then include it in the course of the future when it's when it's relevant. Second thing is I say, look, like now I have homework. Right. So now I have to go back and figure it out. And I'll come back to you and tell, tell you what, okay. what it is. Um, and just in general, if you tell the student, wow, I didn't know that. Thank you so much for sharing that. And if you're honest about it, like if you want to learn, uh, if you say like, you know, one of the best things about teaching this class is that I get to learn new things. Their ego will be gratified and satisfied. And you don't have to tell the next time you teach the class that you didn't know this a week ago. Right? <laughs> like they don't, yeah, they don't yeah. know. And as far as they're concerned, you, you're the coming as the big expert. And you're showing them a brilliant new technique. Yeah. Um, so, so, but be I'll do positive a, about it because that will happen. I, I,
3: yeah. I do a, I do a, a similar thing where if somebody asks me a question that I, I have no idea what the answer is, I'll be like, wow, I should probably know the answer to that. But I don't, does anybody here know the answer? And sometimes you'll get someone that'll be like, yeah, the security policy for this particular thing works like this. And it's like, that oh, sounds like, you know, and then they feel smart in front of their peers. Uh, We've gotten past the issue and moved on. Or someone will say, or no one will raise their hand. No one knows. So then it's like, I don't feel as bad that I got stumped. And I might, if we have time, I'll say, let's figure it out together right now. And then you can see how I would approach tackling a problem like this, which is sometimes more valuable than just, you know, uh, here's what the the concatenation operator looks like. So it's, yeah, there's like a, but again, we're just really just piling on just if you're if you're just getting started start with an intro course because you you need to have like you know some powerful juju once you get up against people who are actually really really good already
2: so so here here's a follow-up question let's say i decided to start with an intro course How do I determine what I want that course to be on? Is it by looking at my discipline, looking at my technical knowledge, looking at uh, uh, what the companies need? How do I put all this together for that first intro course?
1: Um, I've done a few things. And it's uh, again, it's a lot of iterations. So the most recent course I put together is in uh, data science and machine learning. And so I put together the course based on, I read a few books. I watched a whole bunch of uh, uh, conference videos um, and, and sort of, I started to get a sense of, okay, what are the basics that people need in this discipline to get something done? A really useful thing to do was to look on stack overflow under the tag for data science, machine learning, and other such things in Python. And so I saw what were the common, what were the most common questions that people kept coming up with? What were the, the really burning issues that everyone seemed to want to know? And so then I put together what seemed like a good syllabus. I went and taught it the first time and it was terrible. It was like really, really terrible. Um and I I mean, I told people that the first time I'm teaching this, um so please be patient. I literally every 5 to 10 minutes wrote down a question that someone had that I didn't know the answer to. I had like 60 questions by the end of the 2-day course. Um and I like and this was after working really, really hard for a few months to put this course together. I then worked really, really hard again to Go through those questions and look on Stack Overflow and elsewhere for those questions of those subjects to sort of expand the reach a bit. And the second time I did it, absolutely positively better. And like you just sort of repeat that and iterate it enough times um, that you sort of squeeze the problems out of it. And people are amazed. Like this is the really cool thing. If you've figured out the things people want to know, then you'll see the look on their faces as you answer the questions just as they're about to ask them.
3: Yes, they're like you. You have them falling forward into the learning process.
1: It's that's the best. So Um, so, but it takes yeah. Oh please, no, I don't want to interrupt. This is great. No, no, it just it just it's just like like, it just takes a lot of time and a lot of listening and a lot of mistakes, Uh, which is why, by the way, I strongly recommend that anyone who wants to teach do it first at user group meetings, at meetups, on webinars. Because you will feel yourself as you're teaching where things are rusty, not obvious, where your examples fall flat um, and better to fall flat with a free audience or a volunteer audience um, than a paying client.
3: There's a subtext here that I want to call out, which is that knowing your subject matter cold does not make you a good teacher. So, oh, yeah, it's obvious. It's obvious. I mean, maybe it's obvious in what we're saying, but I feel like it's not obvious. Like just because you're a genius at Angular does not mean you're able to to translate that into something comprehensible to someone who is a complete noob at Angular. And being able to structure a course and pace it and hit your timings so that people can have lunch at a reasonable (laughs) point in the day, you know, there's a there's a lot to it. So... Yeah, uh, that it, it kind of goes back to my thing earlier about, you know, it's really, it's two different, it's two different disciplines doing a dev, pro, you know, have running a dev shop and running a training shop. It's two different disciplines. It's not that you can't do it, but it's, it, you're serving two masters at that point.
1: This is known as pedagogical content knowledge, right? The content knowledge is the, the knowing the say programming, And the pedagogical content knowledge is knowing how to explain the programming to other people. And it is definitely a separate skill. And anyone listening who has ever been to college or university is very familiar with the brilliant – I'm probably familiar with the brilliant professor who does amazing research who cannot teach to save their life. right? So don't be that person, which means that you're going to have to work on your teaching techniques. How do you introduce things? What are your examples? Uh, What stories do you use? What jokes do you use? Um, right? It's real in so so many ways. Um, I compare it to being a stand-up comedian. Mm-hmm. Like you you you're up in front of an audience, you need to grab their attention, and every day you're gonna sort of watch their reactions to things you say, and you say, Okay, this joke worked, this joke did not. And you're gonna keep improving until you sort of get rid of the bad stuff, and you'll keep trying new things. Um yeah. Mm-hmm. How do you get the first paying client? That's the hardest question, and I don't have a great answer. I have a few okay answers. I don't know, Jonathan. Why don't you give it a week. shot first? <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll start while you think about it. So, uh,
3: originally, so my thinking back, my first series of training gigs were teaching the uh, FileMaker professional training series. Which was super, a, a super great way to enter into the teaching training because it was a curriculum that was put together by the company. So, FileMaker Inc. creates a bunch of software products, including FileMaker Pro, and every year they they have a certification process for trainers to learn how to teach the core concepts and advanced concepts, and they put together like uh, two or three hundred page ring binder of something like 12 modules and people and they, and they certify third parties to teach it so i went around and and did that i cannot honestly remember why i was qualified for the course I, I to, to, to become a trainer i can't remember that but uh, i i expect that people could figure that out so you know if you if you if there is such a thing still in the world to teach somebody else's training class that's a very interesting thing to do because it gives you a little bit of a training wheels entree into the market. And if there, if, if, if a company has gone to the trouble to put together a certification process like that, you can pretty well bet that there's a market out there, you know, that, that they already have clients who are looking to hire someone to fly out to their site, to train in person. And that was the case for me. So I, I got, uh, I was able to get better at teaching FileMaker. I was really, I was highly confident in my skills of building stuff with FileMaker at the time, but I wasn't hundred percent comfortable with teaching it, but having all of the materials provided to me. And then you go to a course where they train you as a trainer, uh, not really in how to, they, they sort of teach the materials to you. They t- they walk you through the materials. They tell you what the common questions are. They show you how to, the mechanics of how to work the workbook. They don't really teach you how to be a good trainer though. So, so then I would sort of get called upon, it was sort of like magic. I automatically get clients and you just go out and do it and get better and better at it. And eventually you start to be like, you know, I could probably put this together on my own or for a different, different product or different technology. So that's, that was my start. So I, I kind of kind of training wheels my way into it. And then after that, started creating my own materials for certain things. Uh, in some cases with third party help, and in some cases independently. So uh, follow up ones, I think, were primarily with O'Reilly. But uh, yeah, that okay, was that I, was my start.
2: Can I break that down a little bit just to make sure I'm understanding it? Mm-hmm. So so you started, it sounds like, with positioning based on a technology. Uh, you validated that there was a need for training based on FileMaker, publishing these training materials, offering certification. You saw that there was demand for it. You got the certification. You were able to address that market demand. People want to learn how to do this thing that the company is teaching me how to teach people. And then from there, you were able to say, hey, now that I've taught this, now that I've been in this marketplace, now that I've done more training, I could see additional problems I could solve using these skills. Let me put together my own materials to address these problems and create new lines of business. Am am I understanding that correctly? This episode is
0: sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 200 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a 7-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com freelancer show.
3: Yes, there's one one. I didn't do that with FileMaker though. But yeah, but uh, let let me just—that was easy to misinterpret. I didn't then go and create my own FileMaker training. Later, when I wasn't doing FileMaker anymore, I was like, "Oh, I know how to teach software, mm. and I've written books about it." So that, like, writing a book turns you into an expert because you have to go through such a process to write the book. So I, w- I would be like, "Oh, I'm gonna." Uh, O'Reilly's like, Hey, could you teach a phone gap class? Sure. You know? So uh, yeah, I know how to teach and I know the material. And when you put those two things together, it's pretty easy to create materials and uh, be able to execute them in a way that's going to, that's going to make people better at, you know, it's going to, it's going to have a positive outcome. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I just wanted to point out that I didn't try to compete with the existing file maker materials. I went off, you know, in a different direction.
2: Excellent. Excellent. Right. Now that makes perfect sense.
1: Look, I, the, the, the main question here, and this is the one that I get all the time that's the hardest to answer, is let's even say I'm a brilliant trainer with a great course. How do I get into these companies to train? Uh, and, and you can, in theory, I know Jonathan, you've had, actually both of you have had a lot of good success, both in, on your own and sort of uh, um, teaching people how to do outreach. Right? So contacting companies and saying, hey, I think I can do some good training for you. My, my experience in doing that so far has been minimal but bad. Um, and at some point, I'm going to try to get into it again using the techniques you guys have talked about. But um, it's not obvious to me from speaking with training managers whether they will necessarily respond positively just because they go with the people they know. Mm-hmm. And so my recommendation often to get into these companies is speak at a conference And when people come up to you after you speak, assuming you give a good talk, those are going to be people who potentially um, will want um, to bring you into their company for training. And you can talk to them. So someone comes up to you and says, wow, that was a really great talk. Um, And we use XYZ in my company. You can say to them, well, I do training in that. Do you need that? That person can then have a conference call with you and their training manager. And then you've been sort of hooked in. And then it's not you making a cold call to the training manager. It's someone on the inside saying, hey, I think this person would be good. Let's try to incorporate them. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah. and so getting in through the technical person who does not make the budgeting decisions, who does not make the final decisions, is in my opinion sort of the best way to do it. But it's, it's a long game or a medium game at least mm-hmm. um, because you need to first get out there and you need to give talks. You need to be impressive and you need to sort of wait until it happens. There might be more aggressive ways to do it, by the way. Yeah, that's the most aggressive inbound way,
3: in in my opinion. I can't think of a more aggressive inbound approach. Do you? I, there's a there's a sort of underlying thing here that I I think, and yet another underlying thing here, which is that what we've been talking about so far is B two B training, and not not like uh, you know, hey, I've got a bunch of I've got a video course on my website. So I'm wondering what you because I. I've done training, like I said, through FileMaker. It really wasn't through FileMaker. It was just using their materials and then they would promote the list of people that were certified to do the training. So that was definitely, they, they did a lot of marketing on my behalf, which was nice because I would have stunk at that at the time. And then I also did training through Maricana for, for a little while uh, before they got bought by Twitter. And then I did some stuff through O'Reilly and I've done things on my own. But the thing that I haven't done is like, I haven't put a video course up on like egghead or lynda.com. And I wonder if that is another, another decent inbound approach where you've got a video course that a lot of people are, are watching and then they're like, look, uh, I need to get this person to come in and teach us directly or does it cannibalize that kind of work? Do you have any experience with that,
1: Ruben? I don't. Um, people have actually suggested me recently cause I'm, I'm starting to like do some video courses online and then sell them. Um, and, uh, I'm going to be moving into doing a lot of recorded video courses and someone just said to me in the last week or two, well, why don't you put them up on like Coursera, or Udemy, or I'm, I don't even know enough about them to know sort of which, which one would be, which I'm sure they'll be delighted by their strong branding in my mind. Um, but and their their point was put it up there, charge $10, $20, and get your name out to a whole lot of people. Um, it, could be, it could be that that works very well. I, I wouldn't be surprised if there are people that do that. My worry, though, is that those marketplaces are so saturated with people teaching just about anything. What are the odds of someone finding my course? Whereas I put time and effort and money into growing my mailing list. And I've now got like 6,000 people who every week are hearing from me who, when I surveyed them just you know in the last week or two, told me overwhelmingly, these are the topics we want you to teach. Mm-hmm. So I think I'd rather try selling to my list, even if it's sort of harder to do in some ways, um, rather than get lost in the sea of Udemy.
3: Yeah, it's, it's a tough call. Like I have a, I, I know of people who are making good money on lynda.com. I have a student hmm. who makes four figures per month from some egghead videos. He's got one or two courses on egghead. It's not like, it's not like, you know, retirement money, but it's nothing to sneeze at either. And I know a lot of people listening probably are, their eyes are popping out of their head, imagining like four figure per month check, you know, a few thousand bucks a month just showing up from something they recorded a year ago. Yeah, but I just can't, I I had the worst time getting behind building something on somebody else's platform, unless you're genuinely leveraging their audience to bring them over to your platform. Mm -hmm. So, you know, making a name for yourself. So like, you know, there's a, there, I, I could imagine writing a book for a mainstream publisher again, even though I've really, really been blown away by how awesome self publishing is. I could imagine going over to, you know, a penguin or something or a hardcore brace or whatever, whatever the late, I don't even know. They're, they're all like consolidated now, but whatever the big business publisher is these days and doing a business book, that's sort of about trading time for money or, or the evils of trading time for money. And, and I, but it would be a strategic move and maybe there'd be an advance and maybe there'd be a, you know, maybe it would be, you know, on lists and stuff, but that wouldn't be the point. It would be a strategic move to leverage a big publisher to attract people to expensive problem, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, it's, it's really, it's just like a, a piece of, yes, maybe there would be some money maybe it would be a lot of money, but really I see it as like something way, way, way up the, near the top of the funnel. And it's not even the main thing. So I see it as more of a promotional move than for a marketing move than like a, a product, even though it is technically a product. So if there, if, if from a strategic standpoint, dear listener maybe you know someone that you could talk to that that has had good good success with something like let's just say egghead or front-end masters there's like a million of them maybe they've had good success with that but and you are like oh yeah that i'm gonna try that too look past the money that they're making and find out if they've gotten any customers from it, because that's, to me, to me, that is the difference between just getting by and, and actually getting ahead. So if you're not getting, this is why I don't sell on Amazon because I don't, I don't get the contact information. Like I don't know who has my book. That drives me crazy. So I never thought of that. Yeah.
1: Wow. It never occurred to me. (laughs)
3: Yeah. I mean, there's other reasons to not sell on Amazon. For example, they advertise all of your competitors right there on your sales page. So, okay, I, I'm fine with that. I don't really care about competition too much. I feel like I've differentiated myself enough to be to not care about that. But it but I just don't know I'm not given their email addresses. And like forget that. Well, what's the point? Why not just sell it on my own site? Well, there's all these all this. Yeah, I just don't believe that there's a whole bunch of people browsing around amazon.com looking for hourly bu- billing books. <laughs> I just don't believe it. <laughs> I would rather do a short book that is 99 cents or something that has like is just polluted with links to my site. Is essentially a pure promotional product. I would I would want to do it in a way that was authentic and and not jerky, actually valuable, but I don't, selling on Amazon, I, I get the advantages of it, but they're not the advantages for me. So to bring it back to chaining, if you, dear listener, have a friend who's making what you feel like is great money on one of these platforms, realize that if they're not actually getting clients out of it, if they're not building their own client base, their own audience, then it's, it's really just a, uh, it's just cash, which Sometimes is important, but is not strategic at all.
1: I would also mention I mean, another way that you can get into one of these companies that uh, just occurred to me is you might have friends. Some people do. And if your friends work <laughs> in a company, developers um, like don't have friends. Can, <laughs> you know, if you don't have friends, that will be your friend. In any event, we. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, welcome to what it's like to be one of my training classes where I crack myself up for a few minutes at a time. <laughs> People just love it. <laughs> um, so so sometimes, you know, you have friends, colleagues who might be able to tell you about what they're doing in their company if they're using a technology that, that you know. And maybe they can arrange for a meeting, an introduction with the training manager. Right? Again, that's sort of getting in there is not a bad way. You, you want to basically have someone vouch for you. Um, I also think like one of the problems with doing these sorts of videos uh, on one of these marketplaces, and this is, it, it might just be that I'm still too new at it, I don't see a lot of crossover between the B2B and B2C um, businesses. Mm-hmm. Like I have lots of training going on with companies that is not translated into very many book sales or video sales or whatever. And, in the same way, my large list has not translated into lots of people inviting me to teach for their company. Now, it could be that I'm just doing it the wrong way, right? That's in fact, I would say quite quite likely. But people like when you're reading something, when you read a great blog post, you're not like, "Wow, this person is brilliant. I am going to invite them to come teach at my company." Rather, you say, "Oh, yeah, I read this great blog post so I think yeah. you 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 want to sort of You have to position yourself as the business trainer in Subject X. And I always tell people, mention this. Like if you get up and give a talk at a user group meeting, tell them I do training. I can't tell you how many times like I would give a talk and people would say to me, oh, so do you do training? I think, "Um, yeah, it's not obvious. No. Why do do you think I'm here? (laughs) Right, right.
3: It is not at all obvious. No, it's not. A hundred percent. Yes, yes, yes. You have to plant the seed. Even if you... And and I, I'm per, I'm extremely gun shy about selling from the stage when I'm doing a training. But you can at least say something like, you know, in my training courses, I teach students da da, 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 da you know, like make some reference to it just to like yes. plant that seed that there's like that light bulb some so someone in the audience would be like, Oh, that's a great idea. I should hire Ruben. I should have my HR manager. Hire Ruben to come and teach this to all of our to the to the 15 people who bug me incessantly about Python. Well, I'll just have Ruben come in and teach him, then they will not have to bug me anymore.
1: And it get it can get even better because somewhere, like there are what was it someone once said like, yo, know, 80% of everything is crap, something along those lines. Like oh, there are a lot of trainers out there who are making money and doing a terrible job. And so if you plant the seed at the right time with the right company, someone's going to say, wow, we you know, we just had someone come kind of do a terrible job training in technology X. This person teaches technology X. I see them on stage right now. Let's invite them in. It can't be worse. And it might be a lot better.
3: <laughs> right. Yeah. If you want to get a little bit more um, persuasive, you could say, you know, if you've got like a big, you know, oh, when I taught this class for Cisco, they had these kinds of questions because, you know, that relates to their business. But you might have different kinds of questions. And what did I just say? I just said I taught training at Cisco. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. Which I have. I think you have as well. But it, it's, it's the same. It's the same kind of thing. Like you don't have to be jerky about it. it it's context. If you contextualize it, you can plant the seed in people's minds and they'll be like come running up to you after you're done and be handing you
1: cards. Right, and then success and or experience will breed success and experience. First of all, if you teach at a company and they like you, they will invite you back, right? They will invite you back for the same course, and you can then upsell them on additional courses. Why do you think I have an advanced Python course? Because they came to me and said people want advanced stuff, and I said, oh, sure, I can do that. Um, and now it's almost inevitable that a company that comes to me for an intro course will then ask me to do an advanced course. Like it's mm-hmm. it's it's almost clear. Um, and secondly, people in high-tech move around. And so the number of times that companies have called me saying, yes, we heard from one of our employees who at his previous company attended one of your courses, that is just more and more common as time goes on too. And so yeah, over and time, you don't even dick. have to market yourself. Yeah, like like the, the nature of high-tech will just sort of do its
3: work for you. If you're, yeah, but you are playing a, a medium to long game. You know, it's it's, Absolutely. you're fairly soft sell. And lots of, lots of planting the seed, lots of kind of, kind of uh, just do a great job and the word will spread sort of, sort of approach, which is great. Uh, I think it's, it's tough to, you know, when, with, with someone who's just getting started, it's, it, you, you don't have that, right? So what are, what are some of the common questions that people have when they're asking you about getting started with training like what are the what are the real stuff that maybe you've almost forgotten about if people weren't asking
1: um you know besides uh you know putting together a syllabus uh, besides sort of who do i reach out to oh here's here's a trick you can sometimes look because a lot of times if a company wants to wants training in a subject it's because they can't find people who already know that subject So sometimes it's, I've gone through like help wanted lists Like company X is looking for Python developers. Oh, that means they need Python training, (laughs) right? Because they're not gonna be able to find them. And so you can possibly pitch to them. Hmm. Um, it's, it's, you, you want to, again, like I think you just want to find people who have that need, who recognize that doing training will, will bring them up to speed faster. Um, Look, you can call if, uh, like if you're in if you're a developer and if you've been working with any development shops using that technology, ask them, right? Say, say, you know, "Who are your clients, or what companies have you been working with that are using this that that need more help that you've been doing, right?" That the dev shop has been giving them additional development time for. What? Um, Wait, say so that say that again. I didn't. So that. so like so like let's say let's say you're a developer. And you have been working with, like as a subcontractor too, or just associated with or your friends at, a oh. dev shop. That okay. dev shop might be doing contract work for a company. And that company then could use extra help, extra hands and brains that know Python, JavaScript, whatnot. Gotcha. And so that might be an opportunity. Like, They might know who's desperate for the technology that you know, and thus you can pitch to them
2: one path that worked for me i i did i've done a little bit of training custom trainings for clients one path that worked for me was working as a consultant to solve a particular problem during that engagement identifying any training related problems or any problems that training could be a solution to and then talking to my point of contact end of engagement saying hey it was great to work on this uh Seven or eight years ago, I did a number of CRM integrations. So, hey, it was great, you know, getting you over onto uh, Salesforce. Let's talk about training your team on how to use Salesforce effectively. And I found it to be a, not an easy upsell, but a natural upsell. It would make sense. Oh, yeah, we just invested in getting this thing. We probably should make sure our people know how to use the thing. I was told no a number of times until I was told yes. And once I was told yes, I put together essentially a custom training that I was then able to reuse in future trainings. But I think that also might be a potential path for consultants and freelancers who are saying, well, how do I get started training? Well, if you've been doing work for clients, look around, talk with those clients and see are there problems that a training type solution would make sense for and then propose it.
1: I'll tell you my one worry with – so so the advantage of doing that is that they know you, they trust you, and getting in the – that's a great way to get in the door. The danger with that is that it's not going to be from the training budget or they're not going to pay this training sort of money. But it could be that's not what you have to optimize for, right? You, you don't necessarily need to be optimizing for highest uh, income right away. You want to be getting your foot in the door so that you can then tell other companies, hey, I just did training for company X, and they've invited me back, right? It gives you that seal of approval. I'll just say, I, I know we have to go to pics really soon, but I just want to say one, one more thing, which is you want to get practice speaking in front of an audience. So many people are terrified about public speaking, and it's a matter of practice. After a while, you get used to it, and it won't throw you anymore. Um, so use whatever opportunity you can to get up, talk to people, give talks, short, long, whatever. And after a while, you realize, oh, it's just an audience. I'm just talking in front of them. And being able to present confidently in front of people is a skill that people are really bold over by.
2: I could not agree with that more.
1: All right, we got to go to picks before some of our crew has to take off and they have work. <laughs> Boy, Pumpkin, work. Time.
3: <laughs> Pumpkin time. What? Pumpkin time. Like that. For you, the
0: listeners of Freelancer Show, Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save ten percent on any new subscription at LootCrate.com. Just enter the promo code Bridge Ten for ten percent savings. Loot Crate is one of my favorite things. Every month, I get a box in the mail, costs less than twenty dollars and it comes with all kinds of goodies. I have stuff from just looking at my shelf, Batman, Spider-Man, Ninja Turtles, Back to the Future, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and much much more. So if you're a geek, a gamer, anything like that and you want cool stuff to put around your office, cool t-shirts, comic books, etc., then definitely check out Loot Crate. To save 10% on your new subscription, go to lootcrate.com/ruby Again, that's lootcrate.com slash ruby to save 10% on any new subscription. Enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings.
1: Jonathan, what you got for us?
3: Uh, Sure. Well, first I'll point listeners, perhaps new listeners, to episode 227 of the Freelancers Show, which is called Building Courses with Anna Sobramowitz. I hope I'm saying that correctly. And she was a delightful guest who had all sorts of interesting information about creating courses. Um, Not, I think if I remember correctly, it was more of the email course variety and the online, you know, uh, online B2C course variety, but lots of good content there. And I'm going to also point people to a TED talk that I saw recently. This is totally unrelated to the episode, but it was so good. Uh, I've been telling a lot of people about it. Uh, is a, a TED talk by a fellow named Joseph Pine who wrote uh, the Experience Economy and Mass Customization, and I am I'm way down the Joseph Pine rabbit hole right now with uh, sort of new economy type stuff because of course I'm really interested in pricing and the differences between between products and services that are low priced, commoditized t- sorts of things, and really high priced luxury. You know, you can you can pay anywhere from ninety nine cents to two million dollars for a watch. Why is that? And uh, so I'm, I'm like super down this path. So I think the, a great starting point for folks is the TED talk that he did. It's called What Customers Want. People should check that out and I'll put it in the show notes.
1: That's it for me. Excellent. Uh, kai, what you got? I got oh, two picks.
2: Uh, uh, first one would be for any listeners that are unaware of it. I send out a daily email on freelancing and consulting and how to get more clients. And you could go ahead and sign up for that at kai davis.com forward slash daily. K-A-I-D-A-V-I-S dot com forward slash daily. My second pick is actually a fiction book by Robin Sloan that I absolutely, absolutely love. Uh, he's the author of Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore, but he also just released Sourdough, which is a very beautiful and intriguing story of uh, uh, creating things within the tech culture. It's a fiction book that explores, I'm, I'm struggling how to define it. It explores how we aren't really making things when we're working only in the tech world, that there's something we lose when we work with our hands or when we aren't working with our hands. I'm doing a horrible job of explaining it. It's a wonderful book. I highly recommend it. It's my pick for the week.
1: Excellent. I got uh, three quick picks. One of them is uh um I've been using Zoom more and more, joining many others who do it for my coaching, for just conversations with people online. It's uh it's it's really great. Number two is I mentioned earlier, I think that um uh, that I, I often see uh, uh sort of training as similar to doing stand-up comedy. And so I actually have been watching slowly but surely the steve martin masterclass on how to do comedy stand-up comedy and i am trying to be very insightful in terms of putting material together working through it editing it uh, besides it's just a delight to see you know steve martin and number three is for people who are interested in training i've got trainer weekly trainerweekly.com every week you get a new tip about training whether it's pedagogy like how to teach whether it's logistics, like what do you put in your bag, what to do when you're sick, do you eat lunch with your students, and then also the business, like finding clients and um, doing exercises. So uh, if anyone is interested in training, I definitely think training a Weekly could be of interest to you. And that's about it. Jonathan and Kai, thank you both very much for joining us and uh, our listeners as well. And we will see you all next week on The Freelancer Show. See you then.